tonight we're going to be in the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 13 and 14. But we're going to back up just a little bit into chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. As you're turning there in your Bibles, I, I want to take you back to a time when you were a kid. I don't know about you, but I enjoyed playing with my friends. In fact, I wish they would have had a course in my elementary education as well up into high school. You know, the art of playing 101. I think I could have really done well, you know. But as kids, you're always getting a game together. Like um, we used to play, most of our games had something to do with guns. And I don't know if that was... Because we're from Texas, but I'm going to make a confession here. Those of you who, um, yeah, that was kind of a pitiful. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I was debating whether to, to tell you this, but I'm going to confess it because I think we have old enough people in here, no small children who will be swayed the wrong way. But one of my favorite games was a game that my mother never knew about until she gets this tape. My wife sends it to her. But none of us, as smaller kids, none of us had 22s or 3030s or pistols or shotguns. We had what was known as a BB gun. And most of us had a Red Rider BB gun. And uh, I still have one today. Oh, faithful. Well, we came up with a game to where you could shoot each other with the BB gun. Sort of a pre-paintball thing. You know that you hit someone, like a paintball, if you get hit with a paintball, it splatters and you get paint and you know that they're hit. In a BB gun fight, uh, when someone got hit, they screamed really loud and ran home. But we were constantly, you know, redefining the rules. And one time we were playing over at my house, and the rule was is that you couldn't go inside the house. And I thought about it for a while, and I thought that was a bad rule. Because if I snuck into the house, I could sneak out the other side, come around and shoot my friend right in the back. Um, it seemed that all of the games that we had as kids were subject to changing the rules. It just seemed to be the way things were. And we're going to read about a gentleman tonight who had the extreme audacity to take what had been founded by God and change it for his own devices, for his own desires, even going so far as to change worship that had been established by God. Uh, look with me in verse 25 of chapter 12. He said, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. He Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. Now if these people go up and offer sacrifices to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, and brought you up, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines in the high places and made priests of every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast of fifteen of the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast which was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing two calves that he had made. And in Bethel he installed the priest of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter into a study tonight of your word, a rather lengthy study, a lot of ground to cover, we once again remind ourselves that it is your word, not only stories, real stories, narratives of life, but, Lord, people that you worked with that remain for us today as a testimony, so oftentimes against certain actions, but also, Lord, there remains those who offer a testimony of truth. Lord, we pray that our time together would be fruitful, spent in your word. So bless it now, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Now, there's a little bit of background you need to know. This was a particular time in history known as the Divided Kingdom. It divided around 931. Solomon um, had Jeroboam as one of his servants, Jeroboam had been promised in chapter 11 by the prophet Ahijah that God would give him the ten tribes to the northern kingdom. And then Solomon dies and his son, Rehoboam, takes the southern kingdom. When he takes the southern kingdom, the country is further divided in that the northern and the southern kingdom begin to war constantly. And so what had happened is that The southern kingdom that Rehoboam had reigned over had the temple, the center of Jewish worship. The northern kingdom had some unique places that were holy places, like Bethel, the house of God, where Jacob had seen a ladder and angels descending back and forth. You had Shiloh, the place where the Ark of the Covenant had been. But there was no real place. And so, because of this, Jeroboam, I know I'm going to mess those up all night, so go ahead and laugh. Uh, Jeroboam thought that I will devise something on my own to keep these people here. Now, what we see in his actions is a classic description of what we call the root of false religions. First of all, look in verse 25. The motive for developing a false religion, a religion that is not ordained or designed by God, first of all is seen, the motive is selfish. 
It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up and offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam. Note, for those of you who are leaders, this is the worst form of governance possible. The reason for governance. If you're governing a group of people or you're leading a group of people based upon your own insecurity, they are a very sad and pitiful lot indeed. It is the worst motivation. Selfish motivation is always at the root of false religion. Notice it goes on further in verse 28. The plan of false religion is practical. It's man-centered. It starts with man and not God. Therefore the king asked advice, and he made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. I have a better plan, as if to say. We have a more practical plan. Now, under the new leadership of Jeroboam here in the northern kingdoms, you no longer will have to go to Judah. You'll no longer have to take that long journey. We're going to set up. Oh, the plans we have are so fantastic. They're so practical. They're so ready. We're so ready to take care of you, not like the other people. We'll have one in Bethel, which is in the southern part of the kingdom. And then we'll have one as far as Dan. All you folks who live up north, hey, we're going to have a a church there too. And from the onset, you could say, well, wow. Finally, we have a leader who cares for us. We have a leader who's very practical. However, false religion always has at its base man-centeredness, that starts not with God, but with man. Now, then there is the practice. Look at verse 32. The practice of this religion is nothing short of blasphemous. It's false and it leads people, God's people, in rebellion. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, which he had devised in his own heart. Now, it's blasphemous because it takes what God says and totally disregards it. Now, you might ask for a minute, how did this guy fall into such trouble? I mean, in chapter 11, verse 29, in fact, if you'll turn there with me, we'll look at chapter 11 of 1 Kings, verse 29. And we'll see that he had a promising start with the Lord. It said, Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two pieces were, the two were alone in the field. And skip with me down to verse 35. He says, But I will take the kingdom 
out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. And in verse 37 he says, So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And listen to this. This is the condition of his, of his ministry, of his reigning, of his leadership. He said, Then it shall be, if you heed all I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house, as I built for David and will give Israel to you. What a promise from God. Isn't that amazing? God has a wonderful plan for his leaders. Oftentimes we're very dissatisfied with leaders in our country, maybe even religious leaders. But if they're truly there by God and ordained by him, they have been given great and wonderful promises and abilities and the, the tools necessary to carefully lead the people in a way that is pleasing to God. And I believe that God offers that to every leader. However, there is a contrast. There was something wrong in Jeroboam's heart. For though he had been contacted by a prophet, though he had been prophesied directly from God to all the good things that he would do, yet his heart continually turned to that which is false, that which is false is in its motive selfish, it's man-centered, and it's blasphemous. However, let's look at true religion. True religion is very much the contrary. True religion, first of all, starts with God. Why? Because God is the great initiator. I know that it may seem very virtuous for us as humans to stand around and, and say that we are groping for God, con- consistently looking for Him throughout the universe. However, from my understanding of Scripture, it says none seeks after God. None is righteous. Each has gone after his own way. And it is God who first sought us out and developed a relationship with us. It is God who establishes a relationship with us. Also, we note that in true religion, it is God who sets the rules. It is not man. Now, we could have it the other way around. I can imagine uh, you going home and telling your three- and four-year-old kids, hey, kids, um, you know what? I think I've kind of been uh, hard on you. So you just kind of write down the things that you want to do, and that'll be just fine with Daddy. Now, my, my house would become a biohazard zone. <laughs> we would have hazmat crews coming in, in in two weeks. No telling what that place would be like. God, the greater, the infinite, the sovereign, the creator, is the one who sets the rules for the relationship and sets the rules for worship in true religion. There's no way around it. Also, we know that God is the one who instructs. It is not mankind that instructs God. Oftentimes, as I view the religions in the world today, They seem so futile in that 
there's this constant rewriting of the rules. And somehow this feeling arises that we need to instruct God on who He should be and how He should act. In fact, there are some, with even in the, in the, in the camp that is called Christianity, that are ashamed of the cross. Them who will stand and shake their fist and say, Why do we need a bloody Savior hanging on a cross? How brutal. How grotesque. You can't rewrite the rules. God sets them. He's the greater. He's the sovereign. He's the one who instructs. And finally, it is God in true religion that always takes the initiative. God is the one who initiates true relationship with us. And it could be no other way. The reason I believe that you're here right now and I'm here is at some point the Spirit of God began to draw me and begin to woo my heart and convict me of sin and call me unto himself as he makes that general call out to humanity even today. God drawing us in. God is the one who initiates and God is the one who finishes. All right. Look with me at chapter 13. Excuse me for drinking. It's a habit I've had for many years. God confronts Israel's false religion. And we have this very unique figure who comes upon the scene, known to us in this chapter as the man of God. He is a man that is sent from Judah, and he has a very unique message. Judah being the southern portion of the kingdom, he goes up to Bethel, not that many miles away, just north of the southern portion of the kingdom. And he has a very important message for Jeroboam. Verse 1 he says, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Now, one thing that you'll have to note about Jeroboam, in his false religion, he's very consistent. He seems like, you know, in the last chapter, he was always down there at the altar at the church, um, the false church. Anyway, then he cried out against the altar, that is the man of God, by the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. Now the person that is spoken of here, This man of God comes with a very strong, controversial message. And a part of his message, he prophesies about a young man by the name of Josiah. Josiah's name means, may Yahweh give. Josiah was a young man who would come along and become king in Judah some 290 years later. He prophesied that this young man would arise. And in fact, we read about him in 2 Kings chapter 23. We read about his exploits, how that he loved God. 
and how that he tore down the high places and he destroyed the kings. I mean, the, the priests, the false priests, and he burned and destroyed the false religion. He wouldn't have it anymore. He completely wiped it out. What a godly young man. An interesting thing to note about this is that he was given as a sign that the altar would split in half and that the ashes would fall out. God's judgment is seen in verse 4 and 5. Look with me at this sign. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the Son of Man who cried out against the altar in Bethel that he stretched out his own hand from the altar saying, Arrest him! Then his hand, which he had stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. And the altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So he prophesies about someone who will come 290 years in the future. But then God gave him an accompanying sign that truly God was with him. And such was the case oftentimes with the Old Testament prophet. That as God would send someone in with a message, he would also send them in with a sign so that those who heard the message, would be, it would be validated by the fact that God, at a miracle, a, the act that ensured the presence of God, was there with him. Now on a side note, Whenever we see a sign like this, immediate sign, it gives credibility to the prophecy that will come in the future. For the believer, the prophecy in Scripture, fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled, provide for us great comfort. All of the prophecies that had been prophesied about Jesus Christ, for instance, and His coming, all of them that came true, His birth, the place where He was born, that He would be crucified, that He would be beaten, all of these uh, verify and validate the prophecies that had gone before. However, folks, there are prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And these that have already been fulfilled are in, many, in, in one sense a sign to us who are alive today that when God fulfilled it in the past, you better believe that He's going to fulfill it in the future. Just like 290 years came and this young guy by the name of Josiah was born and he was the uh, king and he was a godly king and he did exactly what the prophet said. In the same sense... Just like Jesus came and he died on the earth and he was a willing sacrifice for the sins of the world, he gave himself freely. All of the prophecies that were validated in his first coming will one day present themselves again as we look for his return. It is a sign unto us that there is yet that which remains in his coming. Now, the king has a plea for mercy, and he offers a reward, because a part of the sign was that as the king raised his hand to arrest him, how dare you speak against our new church? 
his hand withered. As if to say by God, pal, you better put it back. This one is mine, and you will not lay a hand on him. If you do lay a hand on him, it'll be withered up and shriveled, worthless. I have taken your power away from you to destroy him. So he asked him, he says, hey, hey, buddy, come on. It's obvious you're a prophet. Why don't you pray for me and help me get through this here because my hand is messed up. Uh, You know, I need help. So he entreated the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you reward. Now, I think personally, as I read this, that this is a very cheesy statement. Come on home with me. You're going to be my new buddy. (laughs) What? Come on. New buddy, cheesy. Come on. You're just scared. You've been busted by God. It was not a real conversion. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half of your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so I was commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. This... Verse 8 through 10 is very telling for us because what it does is it sets for us a, a standard by which the, the, these following verses will be judged. God gave this man a direct command, and this man of God was going to obey it. He, he had the opportunity to become the king's buddy to go over to the king's house, eat rich food, and maybe get some cool clothes. But he didn't do it because God had commanded him to do something else. And as we look into verse 11 through 32, I think we find in this passage of Scripture a very intense lesson on listening to God. I love what Oswald Chambers said. He said, God commands, God's commands are made to the life of his son in us. Not to our human nature. Consequently, all that God tells us to do is always humanly difficult, but it becomes divinely easy immediately. We obey because our obedience has behind it the omnipotent power of the grace of God. Now the story and the plot thickens when there enters an old prophet in verse 11 who dwelt in Bethel. Let's read the story. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king, and their father said to him, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, 
Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. Now, why would this man go out after this man of God and invite him home? It could be that he wanted fellowship, he was lonely. Maybe he wanted to be around some prophet from another part of the country. It was just exciting news. And, hey, you know, I'm a prophet, so why don't you come over and hang out at my house? It was enticing him to sin. In verse 16, he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I've been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by going the way you came. And he said to him, this is the old man, the old prophet. I am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. Now notice what it says just after that. He was lying to him. It was a lie. If I might be so bold, that's not a very nice thing to do. We can tell immediately that his type, the type of prophet that he was is that he was a false prophet. Now, the question is, what is the big deal about this guy not eating or drinking and not going by, back by the same way he left? What is so important about this? And why would God make such a big deal? Well, first of all, I believe that This eating and drinking was a symbolic act of fellowship. God had pronounced judgment upon a country that was going headlong into idolatrous idolatrous worship, rebellion, very blasphemous. And for this man to stop and partake of food, in many sense he was taking fellowship with their sins and with their wickedness. Second of all, I notice that it lends his credibility to their rebellion. And this is how it would work. Here's the old prophet. Well, you know that guy from, from Judah who pronounced all that bad stuff? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a prophet, and uh, he came over the other night. Yeah, we kind of had some fellowship. And, you know, he's not so much of a bad guy. And I don't know that, you know, God's saying that about everybody in Israel, but I, I mean, he certainly, you know, said it to Jeroboam. It, it sort of lends credibility to their rebellion. And then we notice that, in one sense, it could jeopardize the impact of God's message to that place. Look with me over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 9. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean that sexually immoral people of this world, nor with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you'd have to leave the world. You'd have to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. 
For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself that evil person. Bad morals corrupts good folks. And that's just the way that it goes. Finally, we notice that it places the servant of God in danger, as we'll see in the following verses. Now, I grew up in in West Texas, and we had a saying. And the saying goes something like this, not very hard, but it goes, Never sleep in a bed with a scorpion, nor a centipede. Now, those are good words to grow up by living in West Texas because every night before I would go to bed, I would run into my room, throw the covers up in there completely, and then scan the surface of the bed just to make sure there wasn't a weird sand spider and or scorpion. Those are the kind of the nice accommodations that we had in my house. It's not good to sleep with a scorpion. The reason why is there's a good chance that you're going to be bitten. Now, I found a story about a scorpion, and it goes as this. It says, a scorpion, being a very poor swimmer, asked a turtle to carry him on his back across the river. Are you mad? exclaimed the turtle. You'll sting me while I'm swimming, swimming and I'll drown. My dear turtle, laughed the scorpion. If I were to sting you, you would drown, and I would go down with you. Now, where's the logic in that? You're right, cried the turtle. Hop on. The scorpion climbed aboard, and halfway across the river, he gave the turtle a mighty, powerful, and deadly sting. As they both began to sink to the bottom, the turtle resigned and said, Do you mind if I ask you something? You said there was no logic in your stinging me. Why did you do it? It has nothing to do with logic, the drowning scorpion replied. It's just my nature. Now, the man of God is eating with a scorpion. He's eating with someone who is in rebellion against God, who is asking him to do what is against God's command and against his will. And because of that, he is going to get stung in a way That brings irreparable damage to his life. Look at verse 20 of 1 Kings chapter 13. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you went back, ate bread, and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Bad news, you're going to die, buddy. Good news is, is you'll get to finish the meal. Isn't it ironic That the one who had caused him to sin by lying now is used by God to pronounce judgment upon him. The result of his disobedience was, as we see in verse 23 through 25, is that a lion met him on the road as he left and he was killed. Disobeying God 
disobeying God's commands always results in negative consequences. Have you noticed that in your life? Whenever I disobey God, it's not like, wow, that was fun. (laughs) That was better than I thought. I think I'll do it again tomorrow. Maybe get some friends involved. Whenever I disobey God, there's always some kind of negative consequence that, that arises and you say, oh, why did I do that? I'm so ridiculous. Notice something else. And I think this is a powerful image. We are told that Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking those that he may devour. That is the image that we see of our enemy. And that was a very powerful image in the Near East as you would have to walk along roads or ride a donkey. And you were no match because they didn't have any high-powered rifles. You were no match for a lion. In fact, you made quite a tasty meal. So it would be on the back of your mind as you traveled apart throughout the country. But it's very telling for us, my friends, because God knows the end from the beginning. And at some point, you and I have to trust him with our lives and trust that he knows best. God knew that that line would be there. Now, it goes on to tell us that the Lord allowed this to happen, and it was because of his disobedience. But I also have to wonder, if that God being omniscient, knowing all things, might have known that Satan was sending that lion to his prophet to bring discredit to the word of God. And knew that if he had stayed there an extra amount of time, that lion would find him. And if he went by the way that he had came out, that lion would be there. Therefore, do not eat or drink, but get out today, buddy, and leave. There are a few lessons to live by. There is a take-home in this this portion of, of Scripture when it comes to listening to God. First of all, if you want to write these down, this would be a good one to write down. Always obey a command from God. You say, well, Dave, that's pretty simple. Yeah, but it's a lot harder to do. Whenever you receive a command from the Lord and you know it's from God, it is imperative that you and I do exactly as we're told. Now, the question I know arises, you ask, how do I know when God is speaking to me? And this can be very tricky, can it? I mean, if you've stayed up late at night, maybe ate a half a gallon of ice cream or a whole gallon of ice cream and maybe watch some scary shows that you shouldn't have and wake up in the morning and, and believe that God's called you to walk around the earth four times with a trumpet. Um, how do you know if that's God? There are a few things that, that, that will be safe guidelines for us. First of all, his commands usually come from his word, that is the Bible. Therefore, it's, it's incumbent upon us to study, to study, as the scripture tells us, study this yourself. Um, to, uh, well, I, I'm doing a bad job of um, quoting this verse here, sort of a bad pastoral moment. Um, <clears throat> I'll probably, I'll hear about this in the pastor's meeting next week. It'll probably be a confrontation. 
I won't get to preach. It'll be a few months. Anyway, um, (laughs) study to show yourself approved. A workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The more you know of his word, the more you're hearing his voice, and the more you're able to discern exactly what comes from God. Second of all, if you have what we call an inner prompting, and it's, it's for lack of a better term, an inner prompting from the Holy Spirit will never contradict the written word of God, the Bible. God is not going to tell you to do one thing in his word and then say something completely different in your heart or by an inner prompting. Also, this word or message from God should always bring glory to God, not to you. Now, a lot of times, I, let's, let's be honest here. A lot of times the messages that we think we receive from God really benefit us in a great way, don't they? They sort of always sort of spent toward our favor and how other people should treat us and how God's going to do these great things with us. But ultimately, a message from God will bring glory to God, to his person. Also, it should never contradict God's character, who he is. If you're going to say this message came from God, it better be in line with the character of who God is as a person. There are certain things that are said. You ever had a a close friend, someone comes up to you and say, well, you know, the other day I heard your friend say this. And you stand back aghast. You say, how could my friend? I know them. I know their character. They would never say that. Even under hallucinogenic drugs. They would never say that. And if you know the character of God, you can hear inner voices or messages and say, that probably wasn't from the Lord. As a good indicator. And then finally, this message should be free from selfish or self-promoting motives. Now, there's another side of this. In verse 26 through 32, we have the consequences of lying to others about God. This man of God, this prophet, when he had heard about what happened, saddled up his donkey and went out there and found out that this prophet had been killed. And he cried about it and he told his, his sons, when I die, you bury me with this guy because he disobeyed God and you bury me with him. I don't know if he ever really got it or if he ever really felt bad about it. But I can tell you something. There is, a, there is an opposite warning for us, not just in listening to God's voice, but there's an opposite warning for us that we should be very careful what we tell other people in the name of the Lord. Our selfish desires can place others in great danger. Now, Growing up, where I did, kind of in farming and ranching community, we had lots of cool things to get in trouble with. And one of the ones that was the most enticing and dangerous was the electric fence. <laughs> I don't know if you have ever experienced what was this little thing called a bulldozer. And if you've ever felt the surge of raw electricity running through your body, it's just, oh, it's exciting. Now, I had the habit of trying to get my friends to do things, which 
based upon my own selfish desire just to see what would happen if somebody did it, um, was not necessarily that good for my friends. And so we would kind of wander over by the fence and say, hey, you ever seen an electric fence? No, I never have. Well, um, this keeps our cows in. And if they touch it, you know, it kind of gives them a little sting and they run on, you know. Cows are very sensitive. (laughs) And I had this intense desire to see my friend reach out. And I can hear the phrase, come on, just touch it. Just touch it a little bit. And to see the look of horror, surprise, and pain run across their eyes was worth it all, you know. (laughs) Your own selfish desires can place others in danger. Also, our sin usually hurts others, not just ourselves. No one is an island unto himself. Your rebellion, your sin, always affects someone else. You never sin in a vacuum, alone. It always affects someone else. Now, turn with me over to um, 1 John chapter 4. And I think this is the best advice we can have. uh, The final statement when it comes to discerning what the will of God is. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. And he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. God does not contradict himself. And you will never have to go against what you know to be true in the Lord. You'll never have to do that. You'll never have to listen to another believer and say, Yes, but brother, I just told you this, and I know this is a a word from the Lord. Hey, wait a minute. We already have enough information from the Lord on this, and I think we're contradicting Him already. And thereby, we are able to discern what is right and what is wrong. We have the principles laid before us. Uh, Verse 33 and 34, we, we wind up this chapter with a sad commentary on Jeroboam. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Let's look on to chapter 14. We see in chapter 14, verses 1 through 20, judgment on the house of Jeroboam. Now, something happens that gets the attention of this very rebellious king. His son, Abijah, becomes ill. 
And he devises a plan whereby he'll send his wife down to Ahijah in, in Shiloh, who is this prophet who had prophesied over him previously, as we read in chapter 11. He sends him down to him. He sends his wife and says, you know, take some bread, take some stuff down there and uh, go down to that prophet and maybe he'll give us a good word for our son. He's a very sneaky guy, cheesy guy, you know. Uh, send in his wife to go do this. Well, what happens is that God warns Ahijah the prophet of their plans. And as she shows up to his door, he says, uh, here is the wife of Jeroboam in verse 5. Coming to ask something of her son, for he is sick, thus and thus shall you say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. Now in verse 6, the gig is up. He says, And so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door. He said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Now this guy was blind. And God was speaking him to direct, directly. And as she walked in and he said who she was and busted her about pretending, she was captivated by him and he had her attention. A little side note in this. It's never a good idea to try to fool God. Never. If you're going to play in God's backyard, remember... That he knows everything. He sees everything. Even though we are able to, tr- to fool ourselves and others, we'll never be able to fool God. Now in verse 7 through 8, through the prophet to his wife, God reminds Jeroboam that it was he who exalted him among the people. He was the one who had brought him into power. And it was Jeroboam who had not kept the commandments of God. A few things to note here is that all honor and glory belongs to God in Jeroboam's life and your life and my life. And it is just as it was foolish for Jeroboam to reject God's plan, it's just as foolish for us to reject the plans that God has for us. Now, God charges him in verse 9 with his sin. Let's look here together. But you have done more evil... Than all who were before you, for you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Once again, his legacy proves correct, and that is he renounces God and completely turns back. So God, in verse 10 through 13, pronounces judgment on Jeroboam. So much judgment that he tells him that his son will die. And all that he had desired to do in the kingdom would be taken away from him. All the legacy that a great king would leave behind would be stripped away. It's interesting. Everything that Jeroboam tried to avoid by his own self-preservation, his own selfish desires, everything he tried to avoid came upon him in the end. And I think of those words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. He said in verse 23, 
Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself destroyed or lost? What profit? What really do you have to bring to God if all you bring to Him is your selfish desires? You'll never see the fulfillment of all that He has for you. Now moving on to verse 14 and 16, we are given two unique prophecies. Look there with me. The first prophecy is in verse 14 where he says, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for Himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam This is the day, what, even now. And it was coming in just a couple of years. A guy by the name of Baasha in 1 Kings chapter 15, we read about him. He fulfilled this particular prophecy. But then there's another prophecy from verse 15 to 16 that talks about the destruction and captivity of Israel, which came later on in 722 B.C. as the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom of Israel and brought it under subjugation and took the people in the northern kingdom back into captivity into Assyria, which capital was Nineveh. Now there's a sad note here in verse 17 and 18. Look with me. He said, When Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah, when she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now, back in verse 13, it tells us that there was something good found toward the Lord, a God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam, and it was this son. As if to say that this kid was not that bad of a kid. In fact, there was something good in Jeroboam's house. If it not, it was, this, it was just this son. And why did he have to die? And oftentimes, you and I ask that question about wonderful, good, pure kids, people that we know, and we think, you know, oh, why did that person have to die? They had so much time left. They had so much good to do in this world. They were so young. Only the good die young. I think it is best summed up in Isaiah 57, verse 1 and 2, where he says, The righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understand that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. That is the real perspective of death for us. And that for the believer, for that one that is righteous, for that one that is true, death in many respects is an upgrade. For those of us who are living, who spend all of our time breathing, it's terror, it's tragedy. But for the one who is connected to the living God, it is eternal life. It is paradise. It is the hope. It is not something to be dreaded. Now, it tells us that Jeroboam dies in verse 19 through 20. 
And the period of his reign was 22 years. Look with me at verse 21, and we'll go on to verse 31, and we'll wrap it up with Rehoboam and his reign in Judah. Now, just as a reminder, that Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, and he was the king in the southern portion of the kingdom. Verse 21, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. Now, here's an important thing to note. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read to you from 1 Chronicles 12, verse 1. Second Chronicles 12, verse 1. And it tells you about the very nature and character of this young king. Now, it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. With him. It's an interesting to note the effect of power on a person. Very few people know how to handle power effectively. In fact, it has been stated by some that no one should touch power in any way, shape, or form. Yes, you can embrace authority, stewardship, obedience, a task, but many have stated that power itself should be avoided. A very good book I read recently on leadership titled Understanding Leadership by Tom Marshall. In one of his chapters, I think he nailed it when he described the six downward steps of power. And listen to them and see if they don't ring true. First of all, he said the first step downward in power is pride. Hey, You know, I got this cool job. I'm in charge of all these people. (laughs) I must be doing something right. And then comes after pride, arrogance. And soon upon the heels of arrogance, you have self-aggrandizement. Hey, you know, I am pretty great. We need to let everybody know how great I am. And after a self-aggrandizement becomes insensitivity, insensitive to the needs of others, primarily focused upon yourself, And then from there it gets worse to domination, control. I'm in control now. I have this position and I must maintain it. And finally it culminates in tyranny. The attitude that says, you do what I say because I said to do it. And that's all you need to know. No principle arrives other than I'm the one who's giving the order. Power has that effect on people. Now, Judah sins, it tells us in verse 22 through 24, and it's, it's a scene that we've read time and time again in the history of Israel, and it could be in, in the history of our own lives. The leader sins, and the people sin too. So goes the leader, so goes the people. And they did their abominations all throughout the land of Israel with freedom and acceptance and credibility from their king. Now, something interesting to note here is that it takes two to tango. The complete blame doesn't fall on the shoulders of the leader only. Both the leader and the follower are to blame. 
I read a book recently. It's a good book if you'd like to read books. I don't know. I kind of do. I recommend it for those of you who are being captured by the great one-eyed monster, the television. In a book called Certain Trumpets, uh, author Gary Wills has something very unique and profound to say about the relationship of leader and follower. He says, The leader is one who mobilizes others toward a goal shared by leader and followers. In that brief definition, all three elements are present and indispensable. Most literature on leadership is Unitarian, but life is Trinitarian. One-legged and two-legged chairs do not stand of themselves. A third leg is needed. Leaders, followers, and goals make up the three equally necessary supports for leadership. The goal must be shared no matter how many other motives are present that are not shared. You know, you can tell a lot about yourself in the people that we follow and the people that we admire. Who are you following? Who is your hero? And what will be the end of their life? And what effect do they have upon you? And what values are shared? Well, we finish up the chapter in verse 25 and 26. We have an Egyptian invasion. All the gold shields are taken away. In verse 27 and 28, Judah goes into decline. We know it's decline because uh, Rehoboam has bronze shields made, (laughs) not gold. Uh, The former glory is fading and being taken away. And then finally in verse 29 through 31, Rehoboam dies. Let's read verse 29. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did and all that were written, not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. Then Abijah his son reigned in his place. Next week we're going to cover chapter uh, 15 and 16. We have a guest speaker coming in from California, and it's going to be really great. But if you read ahead and make some notes and are very familiar with the text, it will be a lot more fun and enjoyable for you. Now, I have an announcement uh, before we close, and that is um, we uh, occasionally have an afterglow service at the, the last Wednesday of the month. And so... Immediately following this service, we'll meet over in the hub, those of you who'd like to, and we're going to sing some worship songs and just have a time of waiting upon God, spending time in prayer for each other's needs, and just waiting to hear and see what God will do with us. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word and such awesome challenges from Scripture. Lord, you don't leave us in a complacent place, but you continually bring us up higher. And so, Lord, I pray that the the words that we've read would sink deep into our hearts and work their way all the way out to our feet and into our lives, serving you, Lord, in a way that is pleasing.